Hey guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Scott Stevenson back on the show. It's always a lovely chat with Scott. We first off just get a bit of an update on him, an update on his dogs. As you guys know, he absolutely loves them, and you guys were very interested in what's happening on that front, so we talk about that. And then we really dig, and the vast majority of the discussion is surrounding everything regarding partial range of motion, stretch-mediated hypertrophy. Scott kind of hypothesizes what the mechanisms are that are happening here. He talks about his take on the studies, whether or not they're applicable to every one who's reading them and interpreting them and how maybe you can incorporate some of this partial work into your training what might make sense and uh, lots of practical take-homes i think here and lots of interesting things to think about and theorize scott always thinks about stuff slightly differently to everyone else and has some really interesting takes and also has read a lot on various subjects relating to just exercise science so we can bring in lots of different data points which i think is always useful to the discussion so this might just give you a different perspective on that discussion which i think is important and as a reminder guys this podcast only really grows from you if you can like it or give us a review over on spotify it's super super helpful for us and as always if you can give a comment over on youtube or share it with anyone you think might be interested it's always appreciated and if you are sharing it give us a tag over on instagram i always like to see those and i will always reply and it's again highly appreciated so guys without further ado let's get into the show with scott Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Scott Stevenson back on the show. I don't know, I always like to bring up how long it's been since the guest has been on. I don't know why. Um, I just think it, it gives me a frame of reference for how fast time flies, and maybe you as well, Scott. It's been six months, so I don't know if it felt like it had been six months. It was episode 344, uh, but yeah, we're, we're back on. It feels like about six, that feels about right. I think yeah. the time before that, it was over a year, maybe. It had been a while, but... And I see your collection, I think in the background, I see a trophy there. I, I, I don't the... know what setup I had before, but that one, that trophy is actually, it's probably the coolest one I have, but it's from 2017. It was like a third place at a qualifier. So it's not special. <laughs> okay. You know, I, I'll just, cause like, like you just mentioned, people kind of like the chit chat. Um, I have finally for the first time, like unpacked all of my bodybuilding trophies and I have trophies from 1997 right wow so i've been doing so i'm in my new house i've been in for like a year and i had just the trophies just get whatever i never put them up anywhere i never had a trophy case i really don't even have a trophy case now and um i had given away i think i told it at 19 trophies um just to be donated to like the ymca actually i gave wow. them to someone who said he's going to donate them i'm pretty sure he actually took them to a pawn shop this guy was kind of a scoundrel that's all their story <laughs> Um, but I put all my trophies up and, and I realized my favorite trophy, and I'm sure people can relate to this because this happens all the time. So it was 2008, Mr. Arizona. And I'll just tell the whole story. I'll just tell it kind of not trying to like, you know, bash anybody, but the, so the story was came in really conditioned for the show and looked really good. My best ever at the time. Uh, a well-known IFBB pro in Arizona named Rusty Jeffers, he's actually doing the Masters Olympia here in, in like five weeks, I think, um, was, he'd been there as kind of a local legend in Arizona. He came up to me after the pre-judging. He's like, man, and I I chatted with him before, but I think we knew each other, but not very well. He's like, you look phenomenal. Just, I was just, I got to go. I can't make it to the, to the night show, but congratulations on your win. You look awesome, right? Great job. Um, so I'm like, oh, that was just cool because, you know, man like he's been a judge he wasn't judging that show like if anyone knows arizona bodybuilding it's rusty jeffers that's unequivocal 
really he's the dude so I go to the show um i don't win i don't get my win my class i don't win the masters i don't win the overall i win literally nothing right but it was, it was okay because i was happy like i really wasn't you know one person saw how when they hand out the trophies and actually this was a situation where the um the guy who did win and i won't go into that but he did win and when they announced me in second and i went to congratulate him he was actually you could tell he felt a little off because he didn't have the sense he should have won i felt bad for him you know long and short of it he had giant abscesses on, on both of his shoulders and both of his quads that were looked like they're about ready to burst wow. yeah they didn't look good but he was big and i don't condition him but he's bigger than me and were, were it not for those he would have he would have won but anyway so the next day, um, my friend Mike Gustafson, who may hear this at some point, he's in Arizona, um, he had left too after the prejudging. And he calls me on my ride back home from Phoenix to Tucson, and he says, um, uh, hey, dude, wow, you looked amazing. Like, he just went on and on for, like, a whole minute. Like, like how's it feel to finally have won the show? And, like, finally, just, you just, know, he didn't say that. He said, like, how you, you finally did it. You finally got it. And I'm like, I'm like, Mike, did you go to the night show? <laughs> he's like he's like no i had to go home i didn't think so like mike i didn't win anything i won nothing right and i just got second you know so i there's no there's no big you know win so he went out to a local trophy shop and got the best thing closest thing to a bodybuilding trophy that he could it was a power lifter trophy with a guy squatting and he had it had a, a placard made for it that said um scott you're our mr arizona i think is what it says Aww. on there had that put on there and gave that to me because he was so sure I should have won. That's my favorite trophy. That's like the people's choice or whatever. That was just so I pulled that out and put that out. That has a very prominent position amongst all these trophies and stuff over the years. Um, I love that. That yeah. I mean, it just speaks to uh, if someone wants to do that for you, Scott. Like it speaks to your character as well as theirs. Oh. Like to have people surrounding you like that. That's that's incredible. That's so nice and kind. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. I, I have lots of stories like that that were pulled up, but that's not the topic for today. Yeah. We have some questions I think we're supposed to dig in on, but yeah, I wanted to share that when I when you brought up the topic with trophies. Like that's my favorite trophy. If I had to throw them all away, I'd keep that one for sure. Yeah, I've, yeah, yeah, I have no doubt. Like I, I imagine people who have competed for like a decade plus, you just end up accumulating like a number of trophies. You don't even have to necessarily like come top three to sometimes pick up a trophy. So. They don't always mean that much to you. <laughs> all this stuff. I was like, well, this is, it was kind of weird. I'm like, I don't have, it's like all just jammed in together. Like it doesn't even look good. It's just like, it's this giant mass of just metal. Right. So it's kind of funny, but I'm like, I finally got to take it out. It's been sitting there for yeah. decades. Some of this stuff's been in boxes ever since I got the trophy like 20 years ago, <laughs> you know? So anyway. I can totally see that. And actually yeah, on the kind of chit chat topic, people had did ask, I didn't send this across to you. Uh, mm. It was just a question. They wanted an update on the dogs. If there is an update, because I know we spoke and uh, there was a bit oh. of dog chat at the start and I think I brought you to tears. So I, I hate to think that I'm going to do the same again with the question. Yeah, hope, hopefully not. Um, well, Blitzy, my biggest dog has passed. Um, long Sorry story to hear that. short. Yeah, thank you. She had, um, well, she had had Cushing's disease for years. A vet told me like a year and a half ago, it's like You've already added a couple of years to her life, just with everything I was doing. She had Lyme disease, Cushing's disease. Her liver was pretty, pretty bad off, um, as it turned out. She had a hemorrhagic spleen, which we had taken out because those can burst at any time. And then the dog just bleeds out internally, like right in front of you. So, you know, once we figured that out, um, 
did everything I could and she didn't make it through that. But um, I have since named my um, badass uh, um, RV, the Blitzy Mobile, um, because she loved road trips. So yeah, I've got a, I could even, it's right behind me. I've got a, a like a vanity plate to put on the front that says Blitzy Mobile and Dog Dad as a picture of her with two of my other dogs. Yeah. So, so she lives on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. So, yeah. And otherwise, you know, we just went for a little walk. Suki, who's had once had five types of cancer and is half deaf yes. and Missy and I, yeah, she's still kicking along, man. <laughs> um, she goes on these walks and it's like today I had to get back in time. Like literally she's, I had to like pretty yank her back home because she just wants to keep on going. She'd walk for, we go for eight miles and then she, I'm like, okay, we got to get home now. So I have to always turn her around and like, <laughs> it's, you know, it's 20 minutes out and then it's 45 minutes back because she doesn't want to go back home. So that's a good sign for Some sure. Resistance so. training for mostly her. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to kind of, because she's kind of deaf and I have to, and, and she can't see, like if she's looking the other direction, she can't see out of her left eye. So I have to say, come on, come on, come on, like really loud. And the whole neighborhood, she just got up when I did that. The whole neighborhood <laughs> hears me to try to get her, encourage her. So yeah, it's kind of a comedy of errors when we go on our walks. Oh. But, um, but yeah, but she's doing good. So we're, we're just talk with someone on the walk, looking to um, kind of rebuild the pack, I think. So I think I've favorited like 40 dogs on Pet Finder. <laughs> because <laughs> um, these are as adoptions right yeah pet fired yeah. for people yeah but i don't know if it's in the uk or not obviously it's in the u.s okay. but petfinder.com has been around and adopt a pet with dashes and they can do um it's dangerous though they can you can set up um searches that will send you new results um and that's actually how i found foxy my live my youngest my littlest um so if you set one of those up, then you're going to be getting, you'll, you talk about like wasting time on your computer, not wasting necessarily, but you get the results. Like every day you're going to get two or three yeah. dogs. You start looking next thing, you know, 45 minutes, all I've been doing is looking at dogs <laughs> online. So, but those are the two really, I think two of the best sites and adopt a pet actually has a, um, a rehoming function, which is cool for people who have dogs and they get in extenuating circumstances, they get divorced or they have to move into an apartment they had a house or most of the time they're, they're the, they're not those sort of irresponsible people that get bashed online when they can't, um, you know, take care of their dog the way they sort of promise. They can't hold up their end of the responsibility. It's for people who just, one of those shit happens things and they have a dog or a lot of times his owners have died. That's the one I've seen a lot. Oh, you I know? see. Yeah. Yeah. And that always like, makes, I mean, it's a tearjerker, you know, when I, yeah. when I read so that's a cool site too, just for that reason, I think that you can find the rehome dogs. Um, and it's a, it's a checkbox on their, on their search function. So you can look for dogs if that's, they have special needs and rehomed and yeah. So you can really, really kind of hone your search on, on how you want to, what kind of a rescue you want to have. I think that's you know? great because uh, the, the rescue we got, we're kind of limited because we're in London and we needed a smaller dog and, what have you but uh I, I know a lot of people are like selective about oh they don't want to rescue because they want to pick but if from the sounds mm -hmm. of things you can be a bit more choosy with this site so that's that's cool it kind of accommodates for people who are a bit more picky i guess there's every breed out there i mean that that's the thing like people go and they buy from a breeder because they know they want this that and the other and there's almost everything is available um and the thing you know sometimes the the um the fees are higher um a lot of times with the rescues because you may see a, 
let's say like golden retrievers are very popular and you see high adoption fees for golden retrievers because they're just great dogs. They just make really, really good pets, family pets. Just like, they're kind of like the perfect dog. They're the, uh, you know, epitome of dog goodness. Um, and, but that's to support the other animals in the rescue who may have exorbitant medical fees that they brought in. Um, so you can still find them and it's probably cheaper than buying from a, um, a breeder. And maybe you have to, you know, drive in, in the case of the U S you maybe have to drive 20 hours to go pick up your dog. If they'll let you do that, some don't adopt out of state, but you can find almost everything. And I run into people like, Oh, we want to get a, a co- whatever a special, you know, um, a cocker spaniel or what have you. And super popular. Like, well, yeah. Well, there's 25 of them in the Tampa area or in, you know, the Miami area, like they're there. People just aren't, aren't aware. They just don't know. So yeah, yeah, there, there, it's a good, it's a good site for sure. Well, I think people will appreciate the update I do. And, uh, I'm super sorry to hear about her passing, but her, yeah. it was her, right? It yeah. Was her. I'll, yeah. I'll, yeah. Yep. Uh, but it sounds like uh, you're commemor- commemorating her well and uh, the other one's got some life still definitely in it and uh, yeah. yeah building the family is exciting and yeah for anyone considering a dog I'm sure a lot of people are like I think that's really good advice kind of checking out that site yeah yeah and you can kind of get a feel and I think Adopt-A-Pet last thought on this is Adopt-A-Pet has uh, you can click on the breed and then it gives you a description of the breed um, and they're, it rates them on like eight characteristics in terms of friendliness and aggression and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you can kind of like figure out what, what works for you. But I it's like dangerous that. They make all the suggestions like, Ooh, it'd be a great, good fit. Good fit. It's like, ah. <laughs> so yeah, it's tempting. So we didn't anyway. learn, we didn't learn anything about our dog until we'd already got her. And then I look up what, like a patterjack cycle. I'm like, yeah, that's her to a T. <laughs> I'm like, that would have been useful to know about. But like you said, we should get onto some questions yes. uh, that we have here. So uh, we have quite a chunk of questions that surround kind of partial range of motion training. Mm. There's been, I think actually last time you came on, I just, we discussed it a little bit because some of the data was coming out. There was the meta-analysis done by Milo Wolf, which kind of discussed some kind of preliminary like uh data that training at long muscle lengths might be something that people want to try out and then mm-hmm. there's been a bunch of studies out of that the mal lab um in particular and then many others there so i don't know if just starting with with that literature that's been growing and i don't know if you've experimented at all with anything yourself or clients but have you got any updated thoughts on that or where are your thoughts right now? Cause you probably, I don't know if you can remember where they were back then. <laughs> yeah, I don't recall. Cause I've done, I've, this topic's come up at least two other times, I think on other podcasts, they all kind of blend together. Their, their conversation. I talk about it with clients during consults too, but the thing that um, I've heard happen, and maybe this was Chris Bearcat may have mentioned this on a podcast with you as well. Um, I think I heard him talk about it once. And the thing that's interesting there is is part of this phenomenon comes of greater muscle growth comes because of course there's standardization when measuring muscle cross-sectional area um, or muscle volume with some sort of muscle thickness perhaps with an ultrasound where they standardize the positioning and what part of this adaptation to longer muscle links tells us how amazing skeletal muscle is in terms of plasticity and when you're training at longer muscle links depending on the muscle. Um, and there's some other sort of particulars that are involved here too, but generally this part of the signal that's being sent as I sort of understand it 
is that now we need to adapt to producing force in this these lengthened positions where there may no longer be optimal actin myosin overlap in a given muscle. So in order to optimize that, one thing that can happen, and this is this is something we've known for decades and decades, that muscle can adjust its resting length in terms of um, how many sarcomeres are found in the fibers. And we can get a look at that by looking at fascicles and the angles of fascicles. And we're not going to define that because probably gone into some of the other podcasts. I'm sure people know about this. So one of the really, really phenomenal, and I'd, I'd love to see some more mechanistic data to figure out how exactly this is happening um, per se, but there seems to be the ability to relatively rapidly in a matter of a, <clears throat> a few weeks, adjust the fascicle length, which means you're adjusting the fiber length. And with that comes an adjustment in the angle of the fascicles such as the, the muscle, although you're not changing the distance from origin to insertion, you're not making the muscle per se longer, but internal to the muscle, you're changing the architecture of the muscle by adding more than likely sarcomeres in series so that now you've got a more optimal actin and myosin overlap for force production in those lengthened positions. So if you got five sarcomeres and now they're stretched out by 50%, you may be on the descending end of your actin myosin overlap. Um, if you look at what happens in sarcomeres in terms of actin myosin produ force production, and it would be if you'd be better off if you're going to have that absolute lengthening of the muscle fiber or the muscle to have seven or eight or nine sarcomeres, because because now the relative lengthening of those sarcomeres is reduced, and you have better actin myosin overlap. It brings you leftwards on this relationship between length and tension, tension production. So when you do that, then that can happen. You can see this with plyometric training. You can see this, it happens relatively rapidly when you have like a casting experiment um, where you cast a muscle that's in a shortened position versus in a lengthened position or cast a muscle in length position. Um, and I think I mentioned too um, several times like this is something that's been known for forever, for instance, in people with spinal cord injury. When you look at the, the disuse atrophy that happens from people in wheelchairs, and many of them sit with their feet plantar flexed. So the plantar flexors, the calf muscles, soleus, gastroc plantaris, those tend to atrophy, whereas the tibialis anterior, which is lengthened, the dorsiflexor is now lengthened. It doesn't atrophy. It basically ends up being about the same size as your able body control people. So um, and that's likely because it's now adjusting without any real tension being produced. It's kind of hard to control for that because some people with spinal cord injury have lots of lots of spasticity. And if they don't take their anti-spasticity meds, which some of them don't because the spasticity maintains muscle size. So their legs don't look so withered away. But um, even without a whole lot of any, any voluntary exercise or normal activity, just the length, being in that lengthened position without any training per se means that when you then dorsiflex the foot in this case back up to a neutral position for a me measure measurement now you've taken a lengthened tube and scrunched it up and now it's thicker and now you have greater muscle cross-sectional area or greater muscle volume because the muscle has lengthened its its sarcomeres it's lengthened the fibers to adjust for the event that it would have to produce force in those lengthened positions. So it's, it's anatomical position in this case is not 
you know, 90 degrees at the ankle, it's sort of in a practical sense, a dorsiflex position. So just training that lengthened position or being in that lengthened position changes more than likely. This is, I think, the underlying mechanism here, the number of sarcomeres you have, which so it changes the muscle mass, literally, um, in a way that, of course, we want as bodybuilders. But it happens really, really rapidly. So the, the question goes back then, um, when we look at these studies, and I actually, in sort of preparation, I, I looked through some of the studies comparing, you know, length and partials and um, stretch media hypertrophy, and it just looked through the subjects and untrained, previously untrained, unaccustomed to resistance exercise. They're all individuals who haven't been doing anything involving heavy tensile overload in the lengthened position like bodybuilders typically do when they're training with full range of motion. So for them, starting off as a newbie, that's a completely novel stimulus, in particular, a very novel one, because now they're producing force. Let's say you're doing knee extensions and training that lengthened position. That's a very novel force for them. And you're going to get this change in fascicle angle and length um, as the muscle adjusts to try to produce better force in the lengthened position. And that happens relatively rapidly. And, you know, we got a sequence of events here. That may be that change in fascicle length and sarcomeres and series, that aspect of the adaptation may be something that's exhausted in a matter of a month. You can't just keep that up because you'd still have limitations structurally, anatomically, because the, the origin insertion are you're not lengthening your skeleton, like you're not making yourself taller by doing knee extensions in the lengthened position. So back to then someone who's trained, who's already been training in that way, they may have already exhausted whatever would be available in terms of an advantage or, or an extra aspect of the hypertrophic stimulus that would come from training that lengthened position. But what I, what I wonder though, because we're trying to inch, we're trying to eat every little bit out that we possibly can, is if you do have someone, for instance, who, you know, let's say they're doing, um, look at like squats or they're doing exercises where their sticking point is in the middle of the range of motion and they're they don't have optimal overload in a deep position they've got you know they're not using like a cybex type of knee extension machine that has a resistance profile that matches the human strength curve so they've got just as much force being produced in that lengthened position as possible if someone were to and this is what people i think are experimenting with were to like sort of completely, and I would love to hear from someone who did this, completely reconfigure their training to the extent possible to go from full range of motion and to everything they possibly could, exercise selection, partials, all geared towards training in the lengthened position and see if perhaps there are some, are some missed I's and uncrossed T's in their training that could be had. Um, the other thing that's sort of, and I'll, I'll stop with my customary soliloquy here, um, is that we also know when you, for instance, you compare concentric or eccentric only training that you do see with concentric only, you see the opposite effect. You see a shortening of the fascicle, an increase in fascicle angle, angle penation in those muscles that are pain where you see that. So, so it makes me wonder, and that's that's an isolated situation, but that indicates to us that the concentric only versus the eccentric only have they have different effects on this. So eccentric, of course, is lengthening. That is akin to training the lengthened position. It's it sort of sort of makes sense. 
that if you are doing eccentric only, lengthening only, only uh, contractions, that an adaptation there would be to prepare for an over-lengthened position to guard against that. And you can do that by lengthening the fascicles, adding sarcomeres in series, so you have better force production in those lengthened positions, which is the basically the, the danger that you impo you're imposing, so to speak, teleologically speaking, on a muscle that's chronically exposed to those eccentric contractions. So if you're doing concentric and eccentrics, both, is it possible that, you know, in the grand scheme of things, there, if, if you've got some potential to cause this lengthening of the fascicle and, and changing the pination um, angle by doing partials, let's say, really trying to overload in that lengthened position, but you're also doing concentrics, maybe those concentrics are working against what we're trying to exploit in terms of a change in the, in the fascicle angle and, and, and length, possibly. So, is, is the true extreme that you want to go to to start doing eccentrics only? I'm having this thought sort of novelly right now. Eccentrics only in the lengthened positions. Do everything you possibly can and then see if that has some impact on, on growth, on what you see muscularly wise. And it's, it's going to be a little thing because we're talking about not a completely, you're not an untrained person. So law of diminishing returns applies here. And then if that is to be had, do you also shoot yourself in the foot by removing whatever other mechanisms that need to be maintained in some way? So then, then we're like, okay, so I'm going to shift two thirds or three quarters of my training to eccentric only in the lengthened position and do what we know can be done and maintain my other adaptations by having one third, one half of my training being normal. That would seem like that could be a, um, a logical way to go about this. Um, just piecing together various aspects of the research. So those are kind of kind of my thoughts. And like that's not that's not something you can really study in in trained individuals because we don't mm -hmm. you don't get statistical effects with people who aren't growing, you know, at the rapid pace that you see in newbies. No, I think so. yeah, that's that's very interesting. And I, I'm pretty sure like a often it's spoken about how important the eccentric phase is to muscle growth, but even looking at like the eccentric, concentric, like these various um positions within lifts and dynamic contractions versus like eccentric only concentric uh, it hasn't been studied that heavily for hypertrophy from my understanding like it hasn't there's hasn't been that many studies that have looked at like even like differences between eccentric speeds and how much time you're taking in various lifts mm. is that right is that fair to say um like brad schoenfeld for instance has a nice it's maybe five six years old now he's got a nice review examining eccentrics versus concentrics only and eccentrics in isolation do have tend to have a greater increase in average on average a greater increase in muscle size and i've and i've talked about particular study that was done my mentor did where they compared leg press five sets 10 twice a week concentric eccentric versus concentric only versus even doubling the number of sets so they're having they're, they're limiting the eccentric with you know the 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 helpers in the lab and the best results in terms of both type one and type two fiber came from having eccentrics in there. So there's there's an essential component that that is is that comes from the eccentrics, and it's it's probably tension related because there's so much tension that's there, yeah. um, and some of it may be you know tighten related or whatever else is going on in terms of mechano sensing, um, you know, phosphorylation in the costumeric regions or the Z the Z disc regions and those sorts of things. So. 
Um, there are some there's some studies that are out there. The thing the thing that complicates some of that is that those are typically done with isokinetic devices, or very often they have been. And and here's the thing, like there's also the comparison isokinetic versus quote isotonic or or free weight isokinetic devices. And if you you guys you talked about these probably a good bit here, so you know how they. I, I um, think Kaz and Eric Helms have brought them up before. They're like the ones that like as hard as you push into it, it kind of resists you back. It's not something you'd ever yeah. have in a gym, really. <laughs> right, right. It's exactly so. Um, but you know what? Kind of a side topic. I'm looking into some. There's some of these magnetically driven or these motor driven platforms that you can get. Um, I'm not trying to advertise i have no financial connection like the vitruvian is the sort of more okay. popular one um and that i believe has an option it's kind of an isokinetic type of thing so the faster you try to move the more resistance it gives you so i think they may even call it isokinetic so those things are going to start to become available but yeah isokinetic means same speed so you just set the speed up on the machine and you can push however hard you want you're not going to make the machine move any faster than it's going to allow you to and the same thing on the eccentric and you tend to get, so you do a set of 10 like that. Um, well, that's a maximal effort from rep one. Whereas, th so those are all effective reps. Every single one of them from, from, the, from the get go. You do three sets of 10 like that. That's a whole other ball game comparing to doing three sets of 10 with your 10 RM when whatever your fatigue state is. Especially if you take the 10 RM and you do a set of 10 where you still have three or four, or you set it, you do you pick something that's going to be only a failure set on your third set of 10. So the first one is really, you know, you could have done 15 with it. And the next one, you're one or two reps shy of failure. So you get some effective reps. And then the last one's a set of 10. So that's like a typical thing you might see in a study or how people train, right? Only my last set is failure. Isokinetic, it's all out the whole time. Um, and and here's, here's kind of the other thing, um, sort of nuances now to this, these, because there was a question about um, time under tension, I think, that came yes. through in terms of the partials. One thing that's kind of worth noting there, too, is the way these studies have been done, at least the ones that I recall, is that when they, they want to make everything comparable to the extent possible when they're doing partials in the shortened or full range of motion. So they have to base that upon a one rep max in that range of motion. So it's a range of motion specific one rep max so um you do have an issue of time under tension if you're only doing half reps and your tempo in terms of angular velocity is the same well your sets are going to be if the range of motion is half of a full it's going to be half as much time under tension but they're also maybe using a lesser load um depending on the exercise or, or maybe a higher load depending on where you're stronger too so there's something to say there and so that's something worth considering for people who are like okay i'm going to just take my hack squat and just start doing partial range of motion because you may get much many fewer reps or may, many more reps depending on your your strength curve and the resistance profile of the exercise so it gets you know a little bit complicated there but the isokinetic solves all that right because it's tension all out. throughout yeah yeah it's all out and um the other thing that i think but at the end of the end of the day, effective reps, we can use that paradigm. Effort is what I think really matters, you know, um, and that is, of course, associated with the amount of tension that you produce. So if we're looking at sort of the spectrum from, you know, free weights where you've got effective reps because 
the load isn't isn't that difficult at the start of the set, but much harder at the end. So we're activating as many motor units as you can voluntarily activate. And then we've got the other um, plethora of questions was related to reps and reserve. So we've got some limitations there as to how hard can you train. Well, we can sort of ameliorate that with isokinetics and you get better growth if you can go all out from rep one and ask people to do that. For what it's worth too, just adding another little layer to this, this painting that I'm sort of putting together here. You can do eccentrics and, and um, Pertesh has demonstrated this. You can do eccentrics on an isokinetic device, maximal effort, 30 reps and see minimal decline in force production because the fatigue is so little. So eccentrics do impact fatigue minimally compared to concentrics. So there's something to say there too. If you're thinking about setting up sort of this hypothetical, I'm going to try to focus on the length and position eccentrics only if you could do that with a partner who'd be willing to, to guide you through that, right? Lift for you. Um, one step beyond all of this is training with electrical stimulation, right? So we're building the hierarchy here of potential um, sort of intensity of stimulus, you might say, or the extent to which we can basically evoke high intensity or high effort um, tensile overloads, E-STEM bypasses the nervous system altogether. So for instance, a study that I used for my dissertation, um, or the model I used for my dissertation was with electrical stimulation. It was, it was studying um, creatine and its impact on muscle growth. And the, the study upon which we based this compared training on an isokinetic device voluntarily three sets i think three sets of 10 for two or three weeks and then four sets and five sets over the course of like an eight eight week period it was um ruther r-u-t-h-e-r at all like 1990 it's an old study so they compared that voluntarily with e-stem now you turn on your nice kinetic device and you turn on east you give yourself enough e-stem to produce comparable for, really high forces like 70 percent of um, an MVC, a maximal voluntary contraction. And you see forces based on how much current you're putting through that are really extraordinary. And you're not activating as much, you might activate 50% of the muscle mass to produce 70% of an MVC. Sort of the, you might see something like that. So you're getting maximal activation of those motor units. As long as you've got the stim set up properly, the motor units that you activate, it's there's nothing more you can get out of them, right? Whatever you got activated, because the frequency is high. There's, there's no rate coding limitations there. That's just going. And then on the eccentrics, you override the neural inhibition that's in place. So the force curves, when we watch these traces on the isokinetic device, it would go up and then come down. And that's just based on the biomechanics of the knee joint. So you produce better force, like 60%, 60 degrees knee flexion. So not so much at the bottom, more in the middle and less the top. And then when they would come down for the eccentrics, now the ice connect device allows you to go up at a certain speed and then it brings you right back down and the stem's on. So the quad's going, the quad's going, the quad's going, and then the machine just, the quad keeps going and the machine just brings you right back down. Those forces would supersede what could ever be voluntarily produced by those subjects, especially as we ramped it up at the end, they're producing like 140% of what they could ever produce, even eccentrically with less muscle mass without activating all of the muscle mass that was there. So um, 
kind of my point with that, it was sort of like to give sort of a like a, a bird's eye view. Let's see the forest from the trees here is that effort is so vitally important and the extent to which you can stimulate the muscle. And these are short-term studies. So, you know, there's a limitation there, but when you use e-stim, you override and basically, you know, give yourself the um, the penultimate iron mine and, and allow you to maximally activate the muscle throughout the full range of motion. You've got an extraordinarily stimulus that supersedes, at least in these few comparable comparative studies that we've done, supersedes what can be done in voluntary training with an isotonic device or with free weights substantially. So, um, yeah, that's something to be considered too. I always just like, I think at the beginning of my, my fortitude training, um, sort of advertisement video that I made years ago, it's like effort is the number one factor or something like that. I had that flying across the stream because it really is, I think, um, so much. So if we're looking back at now, back to the question, we're looking at lengthened partials and whether there's something that can be exploited there in the context of someone who's already been training, um, doing full range of motion, using machines where the resistance profile matches their loading curve. They're not, they don't have like massive sticking points in the middle of their range of motion where, you know, they're, they're set just all of a sudden, boom, they just have this horrible failure point and they've got really um, far from optimal loading in the lengthened position. So they've they've got their they've got their training pretty dialed in, um, so they can do those grinder reps. That's sort of the telltale sign. If you've got an exercise where some people you can just see they give out, like you see this, you can watch this the bar speed, right? You know, official. Sure. <laughs> There's an association there, but you've got an exercise where you can just grind, right? You can just and, and eventually your your fatigue in terms of movement velocity in those last few reps looks like what you see. When you when you electrically stimulate muscle and the force just goes down 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 it doesn't go and just drop off. That's what you see with poor exercises or poor poor machines where you're going and you have a lot more if it were just the before part and the after part before that sticking sticking point and you got good effort. Let's say you're someone who's done that and now you want to try to exploit this lengthened partials thing. There might not be anything left. You may already have. You know, those changes in fascicle length, those changes in fascicle angle, those may already be yours to be had. Um, but maybe not. I don't know. You know, I'd love I'd love to see it. And I think, you know, for the guy who's been at it for eight, 10 years, you know, and maybe he's like, my back just isn't growing for whatever reason. And, um, you know, maybe I need to start doing like, you know, here's a here's a thought that's connected to this. Um you see someone with big ass traps, right? What do you, what exercise do you figure they could probably do really, really well? Um, I'm going to say what for the, for the back. Yeah. Just what exercise, you know, they're doing like you big ass traps. Like, you know, I mean, I have, aside from higher androgen density. Yeah, go ahead. Bent over rows in my mind is like the, the back exercise that came to mind or like upright rows, uh, shrugs. Have I yeah. said one of them? <laughs> yeah. Right. Or, or deadlifting. Or, deadlifts there you go right i mean look at i mean a lot of power it's hard to say because a lot of guys are doing assistance work and they may be doing heavy shrugs and that kind of stuff but you see someone even people who don't really dead like you see someone who does heavy squats they're loading they're lo loading their traps in a stretch position right or heavy deadlifts um that produces a lot of growth and you know 
I personally, you don't hear a lot of guys say, oh, my traps are so sore. The traps are giant. They're getting lots. And it's just, those are just isometric contractions. But you look at someone at the end of like one of those heavy deadlift sets and it looks like their shoulder girdles are about to be, you know, pulled down to their hip joints, right? That's massive stretch in the overloaded position, overload in the stretch position. So it may be thinking back to someone who's like trying to get their back to grow. Maybe they need to figure out how to train and activate, which is the tough part in that stretch position and go completely outside the normal paradigm of these are the exercises you're supposed to do, right? And the reason I bring that up is because, and this is sort of another topic, is there's been a lot of, and you, I think you probably talked about this ad nauseum, a lot of to and fro, and I don't follow it too closely to know the ins and outs of, you know, people picking very, very particular back exercises, you know, and, you know, being really, really particular of this, that, and the other. And um, it makes me wonder if um, when we look at the other end of the spectrum, people who aren't even worrying about their trap growth, who are just doing really heavy isometric contractions by holding monstrous weights either on their shoulders or in their hands, who have badass traps, a lot of those guys don't even do shrugs. They don't need to do shrugs. They've already got it there. That is along the spectrum of focused on, as Dante Trudell would sell, you know, getting a good pinky twist at the end of the exercise, right? That's one end of the spectrum. And there's definitely merit to that. Someone who doesn't know how to get a good mind-muscle connection, they can't find the right exercises, not trying to like poo-poo that perspective because that can work for people, I do believe. But we have to keep in mind then that if you've got other situations where huge traps can be had simply from doing nothing more complicated than, than picking up heavy weight or holding heavy weight on your back, then that tells you something about being heavily loaded in that stretch position. And there's just no, there's no, um, there's no other choice, but for the traps to contract and hold that. Otherwise, you know, you're, like I said, your shoulder girdles just come off your body. Um, but we do that and, and it produces massive growth. You see that almost universally in powerlifters and people who do those heavy, heavy core exercises like that without like, People aren't talking so much about, you know, should I, anymore at least, should I do my traps this way? Should I roll my shrugs this way? Or should I do unilateral shrugs, you know, or, you know, should I use straps, blah, blah, blah. Like people could get into that with, with, with trap training, but there's not a necessity. You could just say, get to where you can deadlift four or 500 pounds for 10 reps and your traps are going to show it without doing anything specific for your traps. So that's kind of a, a, a thought that leads to, yeah, maybe just finding something outside the box to hit those muscles in a lengthened position. I mean, another thought, and then I'll, then I'll end this soliloquy too, is there's an idea in which there's some truth to that, you know, if someone is doing everything possible to grow and they're doing those big, big lifts, and this doesn't always work for everyone, but many guys don't have to do any direct arm training at all, right? Their arms just grow. They just have arms that are naturally grow per se. But if you got someone who has gotten to where they're doing heavy presses and heavy deadlifts, their triceps and biceps are going to be, are going to be strongly activated. The biceps especially is an interesting thing from doing heavy deadlifts because that's again, a stretch overload type of thing. And people tear their biceps all the time on deadlifts, especially if they're using an alternating grip. So we know the biceps are stressed, right? But you're not trying to lift with your biceps. 
you can't be, you know, if you're trying to move heavyweight because you'll never get it moving, but the arms will grow from that. And not everybody, but many cases. So there's some kind of old school um, ideas that actually seem to support this idea of stretch mediated hypertrophy, which tell us then, you know, hey, maybe we need to be creative and do things like um, try to do like, you know, partials and linking position on, on a lat pull down. It's very hard to activate the lats, but it can be done because I mean, I consider right now you can't see, but I consider and activate my lats with my arms out like that. And you probably could too, right? So those sorts of things are available out there. And I'd love to see, you know, someone who, um, who, uh, you know, took, uh, took that to heart and just went for it for six months, dedicated themselves to just being outside the box and training in a weird way and trying to maintain yeah. their other games and, and see what happens, you know? Do you not see the progress you would like? Are you sick of writing your own programs? Or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with the plan? Then it's time to start working with us. We at Revive Stronger offer a truly personalized coaching service. You'll get more than just an email with some macros or random cookie cutter program. With Revive Stronger, you will be the center of our attention. You will receive your own fully individualized training protocol alongside a customized nutritional strategy. We created the coaching around your needs, wants, personal preferences, and your own unique lifestyle. Every single week, we delve into your program in order to make appropriate adjustments so that we get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better, if you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change, sign up today and let's revive stronger. I think, yeah, lots of interesting uh, thoughts there. I mean, it's funny you bring up traps and arms. They're probably two muscle groups for me, or well, I guess it's more than two, three, if we're just going to say it's three. Uh, for me, like they're ones that just, they've grown and I haven't really had to work for those at all. But mm -hmm. for my back, my arms just take over, like biceps will just take over. So some of that more like the biomechanic kind of specific stuff mm -hmm. where I can try and remove the bicep from coming in as much has been helpful. And I think just in general for length and partials, I I have been doing them for probably over six months now for my back specifically. Uh -huh. And I mean, it's hard to say much. I'm a natural bodybuilder who's been training almost 15 years. It's like, how much am I growing? Like not, not, not right. tons, but in terms of like that short-term feedback of like the, it might've just been novelty at the start, but I'm still feeling like they're feeling beneficial in terms of like some of those like proxies that bodybuilders love to use with the pump and like the soreness and the disruption within the back. Mm -hmm. And so I have enjoyed them from that perspective. And I think that's where I've seen as kind of like you were talking about, if you've already been doing a lot of things like fundamentally correct with your training in terms of you haven't been like not using full range of motion on certain lifts, like squats, like you've been sandbagging the depth or what have you, Right. you have good equipment available. But um, for something like back, a lot of the machines are kind of opposite or bent over rows as an example. If you aren't using momentum in those lifts, which I was always mm. convincing myself, somehow momentum's fine because like I was making arguments for it to smooth out the resistance profile, for example. But if you've been mm -hmm. a very st stickler for like no momentum, I'm strictly coming down, putting that bar all the way to my chest. And then, you know, you fail and you could have got maybe five more reps in this like lengthened uh, position. I think mm -hmm. people like that, could be benefiting from maybe some of these partials the most and maybe for like if you'd been doing just like dumbbell lateral raises and you were again strict with those you weren't like using any momentum or drive to help in that short position maybe then the like coming to some cable work where you're like 
getting some actual tension in that length and position is going to help a bit more. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think it, it's a careful, I'm careful with it because it's, there's not that much we can get excited about. And it's been a bit exciting to see, oh, there's actually something to this like partial range of motion. Maybe that can be productive, but I'm also careful for it not to just become like, I don't know, people see it as a fad. It's like, yeah, I don't want to, don't go to one extreme for it to be a fad. It could be something useful and exciting, but like, let's pepper this with what we already understand, which is what you were talking about. And very importantly, and not want something that's come up that often on the podcast actually is, the length the studies have been run and the fact that they are, they are in untrained subjects, which does definitely mm. influence things because most people listening have been training ages and there you go. Yeah. That kind of contradicts a little bit. But um, one final thought is Milo Wolf. They're currently actually in the study, I think, where they have, I forget the length. It's a reasonable period of time and they've got quite a lot of people doing it where one group are doing and they're trained all length and partial work and the other group are doing full range of motion. So they're kind of going to get a good amount of results from that, which should give us some interesting data as well. Uh, what are they? Is it train quads? What muscle group are they? I believe it's quads? everything, uh, but everything. I don't know which ones they're measuring, um, but they are trying. Yeah. I think they're doing everything. Uh, I don't want to say now. Uh, yeah, I, I, okay. I have to look I'm it back. I'm not going to hold you to it. <laughs> Steve, you told me. <laughs> no, man. It's they're good. definitely not measuring, like it's hard to measure the back and things like this. So I know they're not going to specifically measure those sort of areas. It is. I think I saw, I heard that there is someone who's coming up with some, some uh, maybe ultrasound based techniques to measure back and lat thickness, which would be very, very nice to have. So we could evaluate that in some way. Other than, yeah, your back. Ben House? Bigger. Dr. Ben House? Could have been. Maybe. Been. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've been saying for years that we just for knowing what the force velocity curve looks like that, you know, some cheat movements make sense, some cheating or some momentum sort of makes sense in terms of giving your assistance on the concentric, optimizing the resistance profile, your free weights, so you have help on the way up. And then as long as you've got a good mind-muscle connection, you can you can resist on the way down. And the other thing that's... That's interesting too. This is sort of a, just sort of, this is a definitely a brain candy type of notion. Um, on the one, on the one, so we think about hypertrophy as an adaptation, right? And it, it can be argued that it's not one of the main things that contributes per se on a percentage basis to getting stronger. You know, we've got, we've got neurological adaptations, at least in the short term, that allow us to get stronger. So, one way to look at that or one way to sort of through that lens is to say, well, you know, in this case, we've got to definitely hack the system. We've got to find ways to hack into the genetics that allow us to produce muscle growth and do all sorts of weird things like really control like perfect range of motion that focus on the muscle um, in that way, shape or form. And that's going to let us, let us, you know, somehow make it such that the muscle has no choice but to grow, so to speak. Um, but another way of looking at the other sort of the other perspective would be like, maybe there is something to say hypertrophy does, does exist. It is an adaptive process. Um, and nature tends to be relatively conservative if it's, it's a highly energetically expensive one as well. And some people do it much better than others. So it probably does serve some utility. So what, if you're someone who is out moving big, heavy things, in the course of whatever challenges your environment um, provides for you, like, and it could be things like wrestling other people, you know, or fighting other people or wrestling down animals or whatever. Those are going to be typically very ballistic, you know, use as much muscle mass as possible type of thing, throw things around, wouldn't necessarily have a lot of eccentric contraction, unless you're, 
unless you're being outworked by whatever it is you're fighting against or wrestling against. But those are not going to be controlled movements. So, like I said, I'm, I'm giving kind of both sides. I'm playing my own devil's advocate here. But it does seem to make sense then that if we're trying to evoke something which is part of a natural adaptive process, that we should train in a way that we would naturally adapt or naturally take on to move the heaviest weights and have the best performance in terms of moving weight around in time and space. And that would be somewhat sloppy movement, right? Now, most people are wired to use their arms to pick up things, you know, that sort of thing. So we have to have, you know, we have to recognize that if you're, you know, doing a, a mind-muscle connection does make sense. But if we look at this, this, this human strength curve thing, it makes sense that we would want to, we want to throw some, some body English in there to get things moving. And then we need to be smart. So some combination of like, okay, you know, let's try to craft the stimulus to make it somewhat similar to the stimulus which have would have would have evolved whereby hypertrophy is an adaptive response that it does make sense to hypertrophy and it wouldn't have been things where people are doing you know one arm concentration curls like that wouldn't have been something that was happening so there's something you know we can maybe take from these normal types of um, efforts that we would engage in to move heavy weights around which would involve some 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 body english and also recognizing what we know from the science, of course, too, that eccentrics are important, that my muscle connection is important, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all the other things that we've talked about on the podcast and all your other guests have. So, I mean, I like to, the, the approach that I like to sometimes incorporate is a muscle, it's an intensification idea. Is you do your, your perfect form repetitions, and then I think you maybe even mentioned this, you, at the end of your set, you throw in some some cheat reps. It's a Joe Weider principle, right? Um, thing I've been doing, which if you want to get, like, if you're going to train in a very abbreviated way, um, I've been doing recently, like, this is the last maybe year I've been doing, years I've been doing these. I do rest pause sets, so DC uh, training style rest pause sets. And um, depending on the exercise, I will do I will do partials. And I think one of the questions was if there's an advantage to partials in the shortened position. And I think there's, by the way, there's a glitch in the matrix. I see a black cat in the background there. <laughs> Or striped black cat, I think. It's a dog um, there. Oh, it's a dog. Okay, it looks yeah. like a cat. I just see. Oh, the tail's there. going That's now. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, he's gone. Um, <laughs> is uh, I'll do the set to failure, and or or either either go to failure, leave basically zero reps in reserve. So let's say I get ten reps, I will try to then do twenty partials after that, and then I take my rest, and those partials are oftentimes in that lengthened position too. So depends on, you know, the exercise, what it lends itself to. So you just can't be just crazy stupid. You don't want to get yourself trapped in a hack machine you can't climb out of or whatever, right? Um, and then have your rest period um, and then do your next set, regular reps. So it might be then three reps and then try to try to double the number of reps in terms of partials. So it would be then six partials and then the next time two reps and then four partials or get as many as you can. Um and that is a way of um, those partials, of course, are going to, it's somewhat standardized. So you can track your performance. So you can see, okay, you know, I went 10, three and two on my good reps and I doubled the partials and I can mostly get that. That number was somewhat arbitrary. That was like, like getting twice the number of partials in the reps. It's a pretty, it feels pretty ambitious in the time. If everyone tries this, it's like, that's all you got. There ain't nothing left. 
and I've adapted to this over time. But you've got an arb- then you've got something that you can logbook and that you can progress somewhat regularly because you're as long as you're getting those partials, that's a standardized um, uh, component of the fatigue that's brought in on the set. And then, of course, if you go from 10, 3, and 2 to 12, 3, and 2 to 14, 4, and 3, then you increase your weight, right, using whatever rules you have. But that's a way to both have regimented full reps and then you're using partials at the end of your set where you know you're fatigued and you know your effort levels, especially at the end of those, are, is really, really high. Um, so that that issue of effort is taken out of the picture because that's an that's all out. You're barely moving the weight. But again, does it matter so much when we think about you can about the traps, for instance, or the arms in, in this in doing deadlifts and and squats that you can get tremendous growth um, without having literally any range of motion. Isometrics can do that. So there's that's a, that's a hard thing to study. Um, one because it's hard, kind of hard to quantify, and two because most people aren't going to do that. Most people are just going to want to train that way. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty brutal. Um, you know, it's like, you know, bleeding out of ears type of thing on some of the, when I do that with squats, for instance, yeah. You know, yeah. I was just thinking for, I can get that for, I don't know why it makes sense for back because obviously you're cutting out the hardest part of the lift and then you're stronger in that other portion. But for something like squats where that it's already the, you're doing partials in the length and range and you're trying to double the full run ones like that must be an absolute nightmare. Yeah. With the squats, I only do it at the last one because if I end up, I'm, you know, bottom out, then I don't want to have to go around and take the weights off and come back up. It's just kind of silly. But, um, yeah, let's see. I did it. I did it with, um, actually, my leg workout yesterday was kind of a, it was kind of a more isolation-based one, but I did it with um, unilateral um, hamstring curls. So I went 10 and then 20 partials and 10 and 20 partials, and I just went back to the other leg and did like four and eight or 10 partials before any 10 partials. And I did it with, um, somersault squats. Do you know, somersault squats? Uh, I don't, you might have to do, are they similar to sissy squats? Kind of. Yeah. The, you use a Smith machine and it, it goes on your lap. Um, yeah, people can look that one up. It's a great, um, Joe Daniels invented the exercise and he's got some variations, but it's a phenomenal quad exercise. That's an alternative to knee extensions. Um, that works phenomenally. I do that in a Smith machine. Is it like the machine? Oh. They have like built machines called Sissy Squat. I think it's similar to like the Sissy Squat machine, maybe. I don't know. I have to look no. it up. <laughs> this is, yeah, this is, um, so the way you can do them different ways. Um, I don't want to use up our time talking about this exercise necessarily, but the the bar goes up in your, in, like kind of in your inguinal crease, up in your lap. And of course you can control the bar with your hands at the side. So um, the way Joe does them is you get your heel, usually your heels are elevated and you just squat down, kind of like doing a belt squat, but the bar is tucked in there on, on the front of right. your waist, in your lap. Um, and then you can, when you go down, when you come up, you roll forward like you're doing a somersault over the bar. Ah, okay. That's the standard way of doing them. And what you can do there, of course, if you want, is the way I typically do, I stay upright the entire time. So if you're coming up and you're bending forward, then and doing that back and forth, then you're adjusting like here, you're raising your entire body. And then when you're in time and space, and then when you come forward, then the load is less the top. So the extent to which you roll forward over the course of the rep will vary the load over the course of the rep, because I do them up and right the entire, entire way. So there's the same load throughout pretty much. And then of course there's the biomechanics of the knee, but if you roll forward, then that makes it lighter at the end. 
sure. and harder at the, at the bottom. So you can you can really overload that way because you're in the stretch position with the with the exception of the rectus femoris, which is you know, crosses the hip too. But all the other muscles of the quad can be really overloaded in that bottom position, made really really hard. And then you can when you come up to the top, you just simply roll forward. It makes it easier. Those are brilliant. I do those all the time. There's also a Smith sissy hack squat that I kind of invented, I guess. I, I have a, like 15 years ago, I made a video. It's on YouTube. People can see that. Those are, those are crazy too. So anyway, those are exercises, quad exercises that I like, I would always pass along to my clients. If you're trying to rotate quad isolation exercises, those are two that hardly people don't make use of, yeah. but they're awesome. So I did, I did several exercises and all of them were with this rest pause idea, but with the partials built in. And Dante had partials at the end of a rest pause set. So you do your three sets to failure and then you do the rest, do the partials. Um, and those could be done in any way you want. I just added them in afterwards to be sure I'm in that fatigue. And those are just, they're just brutal. And then you're done. Like that's all you need. Like, you know, how much more is needed there. You got three failure sets, basically there's zero reps in reserve. And then, you know, 40 partials over the course of the thing. Um, so those sorts of things can be done. You can pepper your your regular training in a very kind of consistent um, known way and add make the make the spice of that pepper one that really focuses on stretch medium hypertrophy by doing partials in a lengthened position when you can get away with it safely. Um, and being in a fatigue position means that um, you're going to have maximal effort when you're doing that. Um, and those work, those are a lot of fun, at least for me. I enjoy those. Yeah, they sound brutal and, and fun. And actually, I guess yeah. one final question on the length and partials part, and this probably yeah. ties into this because people might be hearing that and thinking, hey, that sounds probably very fatiguing, maybe lots of muscle damage. And that's what someone's question mm. was like, oh, if we're kind of emphasizing the length and range, maybe even doing length and partials, maybe some of this, are we kind of getting to a point where we're accumulating so much muscle damage and fatigue that that could impact our volume and that could maybe have negative consequences for hypertrophy. Do you have thoughts surrounding that? I get, I get this, this kind of question or this, it's a good question. Don't get me wrong, but I get this sort of question so often. And I get it in the context, like if you do a rest pause set, like we just talked about, and you have three failure points, does that count as three sets or one set? Right. So it's like, um, and you know, when you look at the research, like, like a bench press counts as an exercise for triceps, but it's not a, supposed to be a tricep exercise so they you know they're counting volume in a totally different way than most people would ever count volume right yeah and it's all i mean when it comes down to it it's has to be completely individualized right so if you start you know if you find out for instance that you get really really sore you're someone who whatever for whatever reason there's several things that are involved with the propensity to experience muscle soreness several several genes the gene for igf2 the gene for interleukin six. Um, there's several things. If you look at sort of the whole, um, you know, stress inflammation response cycle, there's that are involved with whether you get really sore or not. You might be someone who doing those lengthened partials just destroys you, right? You just got to pay attention to that and auto-regulate around it um, and recognize that, you know, I can't go from 10 sets full range of motion and then do even 10 sets partials, even though, the time under tension, I think that was, you know, the part of the question, the time under tension would be less. That was maybe that was another question. So yeah, if you do 10 full range of motion versus 10 partial range of motion, you've got an interesting situation there because 
your time under tension would be less because you know you're only moving the weight around half as long but you also could even have a different relative load so this is kind of complicated to think about but over the full range of motion you've got more fatiguing portions and less fatiguing portions more on concentric less on eccentric more when it's more difficult when you're at that what will be a sticking point and less at the other ends um so and you got longer time under tension you compare a half range of motion and if you set the thing up right you have a good machine for that or a good good setup then you could have it could be equally strenuous throughout the entire that entire abbreviated range of motion right so it might take you only 15 seconds to get through that set and then you reach failure so that's 10 reps right but it's only 15 seconds long whereas it takes 30 seconds with a full range of motion but 10 seconds of those aren't really that effortful because it's so easy at the bottom it's so easy at the top yeah. so it's like oh my gosh i gotta get out my calculator and run a triple integral on this and then apply Heisenberg's principle, you know, <laughs> upside down while I'm holding my breath, you know, on the inversion machine in the gym. Like, no, it doesn't have to be that complicated, right? You can just think yourself into a hole. You got to auto-regulate and see, you know, what you can do. So smart, like words of wisdom from, you know, John Meadows is, you know, he would have intensification techniques only peppered in. And a lot of his, his routines, his programs that he sells, which I'd highly recommend, you know, you could see he would wave these things in, right, in various ways. And he's done it like every which way to Sunday in the various different programs. So it was periodized in and you could sense that. It's like, okay, you got first three weeks. I did a couple of these programs um, a few years ago when I was training with Derek Oslin. And it's like, oh, man, this week's going to be rough. And you see what, what's on store. It's like, oh, good. John realized like we need to have a down week. So you bring those things back. So everything was sort of auto-regulated. And that's you just have to figure out what you can do, what you can't do. Um, and choose the exercises, you know, that you can get away with. So it, it might be that like you do lengthen partials for two or three weeks in a row and you're starting to, to notice, you know, that your, your soreness is accumulating. And, you know, we know there's, um, there's a particular very, very cool study um, where they sort of sort of saw delayed hypertrophy. It was, a, it was a kind of a case study from Norway. They used blood flow restriction. And they did like two a day training. You may remember this study. Fairly, was it quite recent? This one. It was fairly recently. Yeah, not yeah, too long. Brad ago. Shed, yeah, yeah. And they trained for like seven days this way, and then they gave a, a seven day pause, I think, and they took a biopsy, and then they trained for like another seven days, and then they, like, twenty days later, no training in between, but twenty days later, they actually there was actually the greatest muscle fiber size. They realized the muscle growth, like almost three weeks after the last training um training session so that sort of thing i see all the time with people who do intensive cruises i call them with with fortitude training or people that have been really kind of pushed themselves into a hole and they or after a show for instance they pull back on their training and they get food in place and all of a sudden they just you know grow like weeds it's a whole other topic but there's something to say for like maybe you put these these um these partials in and you're getting really sore from them, and you just don't do them for a week. So you can you can get rid of that soreness, which seems excessive. Um, the interesting thing, I think, just as another thought, because this is you know there's so many things to to tinker with here, um, is uh, just stretching out, just stretching. One of the things that happens a lot of times with people who are sore all the time, 
I know I'm like this is like, you know, your legs are so sore. You're like you're kamikaze dive, dive bombing the toilet because it hurts so much just to sit down. Right. So you avoid getting into stretch positions. Right. You accommodate. We, we do this all the time. When we have injuries. We accommodate our movements. So you don't see those stretch positions during the course of your day to day activity. Um, there's another study, really old study that I mentioned on occasion with um, with with mice. And what they did was. Um, they had various cohorts of these mice, and they then they casted them and looked at the effect of disuse atrophy with intermittent um, passive range of motion. And I and so what they did was casted for majority of the day, and then they anesthetized the mice, mice, and they take the cast off, and then they bend their little legs, bend their little ankles um, for just there's no active contraction. The muscle, the the animals were unconscious, and then they recast them. So they were no use for most of the day and only took, I think, 30 minutes um, of back and forth movement to prevent at least the shortening of the muscle that happens when they have it have them in cast position. So something about, so if you're looking, looking at this lengthened partials having their potential impact on changing fascicle length and angle of pination, um, it doesn't take much to send that signal at least to maintain that lengthened status. Because in that animal study, at least, this is a kind of a big leap, but it suggests that 23 and a half hours, hours of a 24 hour day could be spent in the certain position and you can prevent that change in fiber length just by a half an hour a day of, of stretching passively without any tension. So let's say you have to pull back on those lengthened partials, at least make sure you're maintaining flexibility. And you're you're exposing the muscle to some flexibility training, some stretches in some way, shape, or form. Um, and this is why you know Dante probably had the the extreme stretches of, of DC training, and I have a loaded stretch is what I call it in fortitude training and two other stretch types, because the two of those are stretch under load. Those can be incorporated. So you can do a a stretch under load, a, a isometric um, contraction in a stretch position instead of lengthened partials where you're really bombarding the muscle. And there you've got at least somewhat of a supportive stimulus. If we're trying to keep this lengthened, this idea that we're sending the signal to keep the fascicles long and have muscle fiber, muscle volume coming from more sarcomeres, you can keep that, that stimulus in place by stretching the muscle out or doing loaded stretches or doing isometric contractions in the stretch position that aren't going to create the muscle damage that comes with doing a regular set in that stretch position. So those sorts of things could be mixed in. So you might do three weeks of loaded stretches or loaded partials in length and possession, heavy partials in length and position, and then go to um, loaded stretches or something like that that doesn't create the same inroads and soreness. So yeah, there's a lot of ways that you know you can sort of incorporate it into what will be a very fun program yeah. or exploiting whatever's there to be had. I, I think your note on like auto-regulating is just very wise just across the board a lot of people will ask like oh, how many sets should i do should i increase them decrease them? i'm like you've got to like listen to what's actually going on in your individual context because i don't know your sleep your stress your nutrition mm -hmm. your muscle physiology like there's just a lot going on so it's just good for people to think i oh, don't just copy the textbook like number what it tells you like okay maybe mm -hmm. use that as a start point maybe under shoot it because you might be someone who's at that end of the bell curve and then mm -hmm. see how you get on and go from there and at least my experience from 
someone who's already using kind of full range of motion, getting into those deep positions and then just doing partials of those positions. It hasn't, the, as long as you don't just swap everything to completely that, as long as you start maybe just incorporating it here or there, kind of like you mentioned, you adapt to it and it doesn't lead to wild soreness. And it's something, again, like the body's smart, it adapts to these things. So, yeah. I tell you, there's a, another, this is an anecdotal thing. And, you know, I, I noticed this and I mentioned it many years ago. And now in the context of this conversation, it makes a lot of sense. One of the things that, that happened with DC training when I first started really doing it um, was greater quad separation. Um, and everyone I went through DC, people noticed this almost universally. And um, the way I would have people do the, the extreme stretch was, wasn't really a loaded stretch with it's You can do those, but it's, you know, kind of uncomfortable to try to, you know, like, like do like get like a kind of do a, a hurdler stretch, you know, with weight on top of you or holding a, a plate and you lean back it's not like your ankles aren't very happy it doesn't really work very well <clears throat> so what i would typically have people do is find like a like the the ankle pad on like a decline um bench or maybe the the hip pad on a on a lat pull down machine something that's soft and you can put the upper part of your foot on you put your foot up by your your glute and then you you stretch your quad by bending at the knee and then you also drive your hip forward um, and DC training, this would happen after you've chest trained, right? Um, and those are brutal. Um, when I've done the fortitude training camps, there have been a lot of people who've done fortitude training for years and they just neglected the stretches. And we would do leg training, you know, as like the first thing we would train just to kind of get that out of the way. Because by the end of the weekend, there's just no way around. They're not, not wanting to do that. And then when they come to stretches, like, holy shit, I hardly I forgot that this was here. But the thing that would happen when you do a stretch like that, so you got your heel up by your by your glute and it's in place. So you're stretching the quads. You've got basically maximal knee flexion, squat stretch. And then you drive your hips forward and that causes hip extension and really stretches the rectus femoris. And then what I would have people, what we would do with DC training is then you contract and try to extend your quad and hold that for 90 seconds. So it's an all out effort for 90 seconds in this case, trying to extend the knee and you're activating the rectus femoris maximally in its maximally stretched position in a way that you really don't ever get in any exercise at all. So we think about what causes, what causes separation? What, what means, what does it mean to have good separation in the quads? Well, one, you have to have low body fat or the water, all that kind of stuff, but it's the groove between the lateralis and the medialis that's created by the, the fascia between the rectus femoris, which runs right up the middle. If you have a huge rectus femoris, that's, you know, literally this, this mountain in between those two other muscles laterally in your adductors, of course, too, you've got this, this basically two muscles that come down and a huge muscle here. That groove between on either side of the rectus femoris is what gives you that appearance of good muscle separation between the muscles. There's also, you know, striations, the the fascicles, et cetera. But, and that is why that muscle separation would become so apparent, I think, is because doing a maximal effort 90-second isometric um, for the rectus femoris like that is something you don't get in any exercise. I can't, I mean, a, a sissy hack or sissy squat is about the closer you get to that. But this like is a, Nordic, a link. Nordic curl, maybe, similar. Uh, a Nordic curl sit... is like a... Where you sit on your ankles and you kind of lean back—is that what? Is that? Am I well, that's thinking? That's a hamstring wrong? exercise. 
I, the where you kind of sit down on your ankles. I'm not flexible even enough to do it. And then you kind of lean back. Is that called a Nordic curl? Oh, yeah, curl? yeah, yeah. I know what you mean, yeah. Um, yeah, that could maybe be it. But, but yeah, I, I, those are always like, feels like I'm going to break my ankles. If I yeah, they're them. horrible. <laughs> yeah, they're terrible. Um, and, you, and, you, and you're like, you're not going to do a set that lasts 90 seconds probably. No. And the nice thing about this is that it's maximal effort in that stretch position. So at any rate, yeah, right. There may be some, you know, person in, in Norway, let's say, who's, you know, done all of his or her training doing those, that exercise. Um, but most people, this is completely novel and new. So that's why I think that it was almost a universal thing that people saw more separation. It wasn't that, you know, something about rest pause sets or widow makers made it so that you got, you know, you burned away the fat or something on your quads. It was that having a larger rectus femoris because he was ex experiencing a substantially new type of stimulus that was hypertrophic in nature made it such that it just accentuated um, the fascial lines, the separation between the medial muscles and the lateral muscles of the quad and the thigh. And that was it. So like, that's something that, you know, people could probably even just apply now is start doing a, that quad stretch. Um, but, if they're brutal, like you get done, like I used to do them. Like when I first, before I knew what I was doing with TC, before I even talked, talked to Dante, I would do them right after my last quad exercise. That was a killer because you know, the blood flow restriction is a hundred percent and the, it's just, the pain is just crazy. It's like doing BFR training. Oh, I can um, imagine. Yeah. But if you do those after you train, like that's, that's just something that, you know, I would recommend someone who's not done those, give that a shot because that's a way, for instance, specifically for rectus femoris, that's a novel stimulus. Yeah. So um, anyway, I could talk more. I think we might be out of time because I know we had only about an hour. Yeah, so. I'm sorry. Oh, I, I, I'm glad we uh, we covered this topic really nicely, though. So I'm really glad about that. And we have more we can dig into uh, in a future episode. So I, I appreciate that. Yeah, we gave this one nice due diligence. And as ever, Scott, it's a pleasure talking to you. It'll be less than six months now because uh, we yeah. have some questions from you guys to cover. And uh, right. as always, I appreciate your time. I appreciate you guys listening. And uh, if people don't already, where should they, if they want to keep up to date with everything you're doing, Scott? They'll do an Instagram, I think. Um, DrScottStevenson.com is my website or fortitude underscore training on Instagram. That'll get you to me one way or another. And Scott's got, for people that want more of Scott and I don't know, they want educational materials. You've got so many books now that are just fantastic. And like, as you've heard Scott speak here, he thinks about things deeply and uh, is very well read. So I, I can highly recommend those two for anyone who's like wants to dig into some of the weeds. And uh, yeah, I'll make sure that's linked in the description, the, the website and your Instagram. And we'll catch you next time. Cheers, guys. Thanks, sir. Losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It isn't though, it's reality and we know how to do it and we will help you achieve this. The Minicup Movement is an eight week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You'll receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of 
the mini cuts so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do. But the best thing is that you can start whenever you want. The mini cut movement is open 24 seven. So if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up, hit the link in the description below. So let's revive stronger together.